0: And uh, again, a warm welcome to you, especially if you're uh, visiting with us this morning. We're delighted you're here worshiping uh, with us, and um, it's always a a good week, a a great week to begin um, a week together, um, a good way to uh, begin the week together um, in worship. And so um, I'm grateful to be here with you and grateful to be able to turn to God's Word And uh, we're at the moment in a series uh, where we're um, working through what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And I I want to begin this morning by asking you uh, this question. Do you know what your purpose in life is? Do you know why you're here? Not here in this room, I mean here in this world, living the life that you do. Do you know for what purpose or end your life serves well the opening question of the westminster shorter catechism seeks to provide an answer to that question for us you see the opening question asks what is the chief end of man and of course man is mankind both men and women what is the chief end of man and the answer it then provides is this man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, I suspect that when you hear that, most of us in this room have some inkling as to what it means to glorify God. We kind of have an idea of what that means. We generally understand what it means to glorify God. We have a sense of of what it means to, to fear him, to obey him, to love, honor, and worship him. But I also suspect that a few of us might then struggle a bit with the second part of the answer that's given when it says, and enjoy him forever. Uh, I suspect that at least a few of us uh, might be left scratching our head a bit at the word enjoy, thinking, what does it mean to enjoy God? How do I enjoy God? And the simple answer that I would give you is, do you have people in your life that you enjoy? Like if you're a a, a parent, you enjoy your kids, at least some of the time, right? You You have some friends that you love spending time with, you enjoy hanging out with. They're just people in your life that you enjoy. And what happens is, in our relationship with Jesus, we can tend to think about our faith as a a very cerebral thing, a very religious thing. And we don't readily think about our faith as something that we ought to enjoy. In fact, I think it's telling that joy is something that we don't often think uh, about as coinciding with our faith. But Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if God is your treasure, he will also be your pleasure. And so as Christians, Jesus should be high on our, our list of people that, that we enjoy. In fact, he should be right at the top of the list. Now, I want you to hold on to that as we talk today about this idea of joy. So let's pray, and then we're, we're going to dive into this idea. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we don't often enjoy our faith. We don't enjoy our relationship with you so often. It just seems like our belief system. It feels like sometimes a duty to us. It feels maybe even like a burden to us. It feels like a a series of check boxes to us. And so we pray this morning that you would light the fire of joy inside of our lives so that we know what it is to truly have joy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you, you've noticed already that I've bounced back and forth between two words, even in just that little uh, introduction, the word joy and the word enjoy. And, and, and how are these two words, joy and enjoy, connected? Well, joy is, at its most basic level, feeling or experiencing great happiness and pleasure. That's, that's what joy is what 's enjoying something is at its most basic is receiving great happiness and pleasure from someone or something. so you could say that joy is the noun and joy is the verb, and joy comes from a source we we get joy from someone or something. Now I want you to hold on to that as I now read a very famous passage in John uh, chapter fifteen. These are the words of Jesus and very Often we hear only a few little bits of this long passage out of context, but I want to read the whole thing together. And you're probably going to, if you've been around church uh, at all for any length of time, uh, you're going to recognize some very famous words here in this passage, starting in John 15, verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you these things i command you so that you will love one another so it's a long passage but it but all of it works together for this one singular point that jesus is trying to make and he tells us right in the 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 right in the middle, the point that he's trying to make. It's in verse 11. Did, did you catch it? Jesus says, these, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be complete. And I believe that verse is critical to understanding this whole passage. Jesus wants your joy to be full. He wants it to be complete. He wants you to have have the joy that he has, and he wants you to be overflowing with that joy. Again, what's joy? Feeling or experiencing great happiness and pleasure. That's, that's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to have not just a little bit of joy. He wants your joy to be absolutely full and complete. And you, and you see where he says this joy comes from. He says it is his joy. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be complete. He wants to be the source of our joy. He wants us to enjoy him. And the first and most fundamental thing to say here is that the enjoyment of God is the enjoyment of a person, not just the enjoyment of a thing or an idea or a pattern of actions. We're not talking here about the enjoyment of God's gifts, but of God himself. And it's also important to note that the context of this passage is Jesus heading to the cross. Jesus is about, in, chapter, in John chapter 15, to be betrayed by one of his friends, denied by another, and abandoned by everybody else. In the chapter before this one, he, he confessed that he was greatly troubled. In the next chapter, he's about to tell them, uh, his disciples, that they're going to be hated for following him, and he's, and he's going to talk about the crushing sorrow that he's going to feel on the cross. That's the context of Jesus talking about joy. It's in that context of deep pain and sorrow that Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. I wonder if Jesus' definition of joy is perhaps a little different than mine. Because somehow, Jesus is able to decouple joy from his external circumstances. And So let's work our way through this passage because it's, because it's here. First five verses. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So remember, this passage is fundamentally about what? Joy. Jesus telling us has told us that this is about joy. And I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone preach this passage and have it to have anything to do with joy. But let's work our way through this important visual that, that, that Jesus gives us uh, here in these verses. And, and it all has to do with this picture that, that'll come up on the screen, a picture that we're, we're all very familiar with, a picture of, of a grapevine. So let's talk about this for a second. This is the picture that Jesus gives. First, look at the vine. Do you see the vine? right? You know what the vine is. It's that part down at the bottom, this big gnarly tree branch looking thing is the vine. And this this part, this big gnarly part is the only part of the whole grape plant that touches the ground and provides nourishment. If you don't have the vine, this beefy vine, you've got nothing. And who does Jesus say the vine is? He is. Jesus is the vine. Okay? Second, so we move uh, to the fruit. That's the the grapes, of course. Now, it's easy when you're dealing with a text like this to assume that you know what the fruit is, especially since we're doing a series uh, on the fruit of the Spirit, right? But... But that isn't necessarily what the fruit is in this passage, because you know how sometimes you can use the same metaphor to mean two different things in two different contexts at two different times? Well, Paul wrote the passage in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus is talking here, and he may be talking about the same thing. Some people think he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and that might be right. Other people... I think he's talking about people sharing the gospel with people and people coming to faith in Christ and that that's the fruit. And they might be right, we can't be dogmatic about it, but I think the context of this passage when you look at the surrounding verses and the surrounding chapters and in fact the whole book of John, I think that what we'll see is the fruit that he's talking about here is Love. I think that's the context here. Jesus seems to be focusing in this passage on loving like him. And so that's what I think the fruit is. I think the fruit is love. And what is it between the big gnarly vine and the fruit? The branches. You You can see the branches. The branches are what connects the vine and the fruit. And those branches, according to the picture that Jesus is painting here, those branches that's you. We're the branches. We are the conduit from Jesus to fruit. We are the conduit of God's love to people, right? And so what does Jesus say to the branches? What is their job? He says, remain in me. Abide in me. Hold on to that. We'll get back to it because there's a fourth aspect or character that we may have forgotten about who's in the first verse. He says in the first verse, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. God the father is the gardener. And what does he do? in Jesus' illustration? Well, first he finds some branches that are completely dead and he cuts them off and he he tosses them into a fire. We're going to come back to that in a second. And then he finds branches that are bearing fruit. And what does he do? He cuts them. He prunes the ones that are actually bearing fruit so that they will bear more fruit, which is, I mean, totally counterintuitive. I mean, anyone who's done any gardening, you know that sometimes, I mean, I find pruning difficult. I'm often what I would describe, I call a tentative pruner because. It can be hard to cut off a branch that seems to be healthy and bearing fruit. So sometimes when I'm pruning, I have to do it in stages, you know, taking off just a, a little bit at first and then building up some courage and confidence before taking off bigger, more, more you know, aggressive cuts. And as difficult as it sometimes can be, we, we do it because we know that by making those cuts, we are improving the health and strength of the plant, which leads to better, a better and fuller harvest of fruit. That's what pruning does. Sometimes you cut off what is fruitful so that it will bear more fruit. Now, the big question is, who's responsible for the fruit? Well, the gardener prunes. the vine Jesus brings life and nourishment. What do we do? Well, we hang out, right? We remain in him. Hold on to that. Verse, verse 6 he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So, what is Jesus talking about here? Who is the branch that, that, that does not abide, uh, that does not remain? You know, some people look at this and say, Well, there you go. That's proof that what he's talking about is there are some people who are Christians and then they cease to be Christians. They lose their salvation because they didn't remain in Jesus. They didn't abide in Jesus and they are tossed into the fire. But there's a problem with that because Jesus said something three verses earlier that that doesn't fit the context. I mean, he's talking about grapes, he's talking about gardeners, he's talking about vines and he's talking about branches. And then in verse 3 he says, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. I mean, what an odd thing to say. Why, why does he say it? Well, that's what I call a, a gospel juke, where he just, he, he sort of jukes to the, the good news to remind us of something, right? I mean, he's he's tracking along with this illustration. He goes, oh, and by the way, you're already clean. And in John 13, Two chapters before this, he uses "clean" as an illustration of you being saved. "Clean" was this idea of that that we've been cleansed from our sin. We've so 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 he's already established. He's like, before you misconstrue what I'm about to say, Jesus says, "I want you to remember that you're already clean. You're already saved. There's nothing you can do to to, to you know." to to cause you to lose that salvation. He kind of jukes over to that, and then he comes back and says, but there is a sense in which I am commanding you, I'm telling you, abide in me, remain in me, so that you may produce more fruit. Now, why, why does he say this? Because there's a danger here. Because if he had just had this whole conversation, he's like, basically, if you're a disciple of mine, we're going to see fruit in your life. What happens is there's a danger. First, we look at people around us who are not very loving, and we're like, well, I guess they're not a Christian. And then on those days where we're not being very loving, we go, well, am I even a Christian? But we have to get this. It's really important for us to get this. Sometimes it's winter. Sometimes it's just dry. And in those seasons, those seasons of winter, those those dry seasons, there isn't as much, if any, visible fruit. Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now. You had big plans for your life, but they're not panning out. You've been betrayed by a close friend. Maybe even been betrayed by your spouse. You aren't feeling fulfilled at work, or, or gas prices are so high that it's really making it hard for you to make ends, ends meet. Sometimes it's winter. Sometimes it's dry. What do do we do in those seasons? How do we find joy in those seasons? We remain in Jesus. We abide in Jesus. That word remain or abide can actually be translated more literally in Greek. Keep on remaining. Keep on abiding. He says, you're already in Christ. You are already part of his branch. So just keep on doing that. Keep on abiding in him. Keep on remaining in him. And hold on to that verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, this is a, a tricky and not tricky uh, passage. He's basically saying there there is proof that you are Jesus's disciples. You will bear fruit, and I think in the context, he's saying you're just going to become a more loving person over the course of your life. If You are a follower of Christ. You're going to bear some fruit. And when there's fruit in your life, God is going to be glorified. And this is the crazy part. You can't do anything to create that fruit in your life. He's the one who does it. He's the one who gives nourishment. The vine is the one who brings that to you. All you do is hang out and remain in Jesus. And with that said... Well, there's nothing that you can do to create fruit. There is stuff that you can do in your life to help cultivate more of that in your life. Do you see it in this passage? It's right there. Let me reread it again. If you abide in me, and what? My words abide in you. There is great spiritual power in God's word. The Bible is how you get to know Jesus more. It's how you learn to enjoy Jesus more. But it doesn't stop with that. What does he say next? He doesn't just say, if my my words abide in you. He says, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's prayer. Of course, this doesn't mean, by the way, that God is, you know, a, a cosmic vending machine, right? Where you just, you know put in the coins and then you ask him whatever you want it kind of kicks right out on the other side. That's not what he's saying in context. This little verse is about the conversation we as followers of Christ have with God. And this is how our conversation with God goes. We engage with his word, right? We, we read it or, or we listen to it. And what happens is as you do that, It remains in you. It sticks. And you begin to pray back to God according to his will. Because you're praying according to what you're reading and what you're hearing. And that is your part of the conversation back to him. And this is how you become more and more like Jesus. And bear the fruit of Jesus in your life. So here's the question. I've just done most of my sermon and barely mentioned one word. Joy. What does any of this have to do with joy? Well, remember, Jesus told us that we would receive joy from him. That that the point of this passage is so that we would receive joy and that our joy would be complete. All right, imagine, and, and, and some of you don't have to imagine, that you are in one of those winter seasons right now. You're in one of those dry seasons right now. The outward circumstances of your life are pressing in on you. And what happens is outside circumstances tend to determine our inner reality and our inner attitudes. If if things are going extremely well in my life, well, then I'm happy and I'm joyful. If things are really crappy, we then have a negative outlook on life. And what Jesus is saying on his way to the cross, about to be betrayed, talking about his great sorrow and the fact that that his disciples are going to be hated, is there is a key to joy despite our outward circumstances. What is it? His word remaining in you. And you responding back to him, asking him whatever you want. Because what you want is changing through the word. And then as that loop happens in your life, you're able to have joy despite external circumstances. Let me just pick one example I gave earlier. Let's say that you've been betrayed by a close friend. That's winter. Most of us have probably experienced that at some point in our life. It's painful. And and when we do, when it's dark like that, we we, we go to the Word of God. Let me just give you uh, one uh, simple passage in, uh, in, in in Hebrews 13. Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, what happens is, just reading that doesn't take away the winter, does it? It doesn't take away the pain, does it? But when we take this truth and we sit in it, we remain in it, we abide in it, And then we ask God, because we want to ask whatever we need, will you make this real in my life? He begins to do a work. We say, God, give me the confidence of knowing you're not going to leave me or abandon me like my friend did. Help me to know that you're my helper. Help me not to be afraid. What can man do to me? So on Friday, I, along with a number of you, was at the heartbreaking funeral of a precious two-year-old little girl, and I don't know what is is more sorrowful and tragic than the sight of of a little child's casket being lowered into the ground, and just the visceral heartbreak of a mom and dad and family mourning such overwhelming and suffocating loss. And then yesterday, I attended a Christmas in July party for a beautiful young girl who is dying of cancer and who will not make it to Christmas this year. And so her family wanted to celebrate Christmas because she loves it so much. And all of the fun and all of the decorations and all of that couldn't mask over the stark and piercing reality of parents facing the approaching death of their child. And I just thought, how do I go tomorrow and preach a sermon on joy? Right? Like, how can I preach a sermon on joy when these are the, the realities faced and experienced? How, how am I going to talk about joy? And then my, my, my mind went back to this passage in Hebrews. For Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It doesn't feel right. But we can pray that God would make that feel right. And yesterday, I was listening on my Spotify connection. I, I don't always understand how those playlist algorithms work, but one song that popped up was an old gospel song by Andre Crouch that I hadn't heard in years, maybe decades, and the song was Soon and Very Soon. And, and, and here are some of the lyrics. It says, soon and very soon, we're gonna see the king. No more crying there, we're gonna see the king. No more dying there, we're gonna see the king. And those words are taken right out of the book of Revelation where we know that one day we'll see King Jesus and there will be no more sorrow and no more pain. And, 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 and it caused me just to pray, Lord, would you make this real in the lives of people who are facing this terrible sadness of death? Would you make this real? And by the way, Jesus didn't just pull this stuff out of thin air. This is all throughout all of Scripture. You go to Psalm 37, it says this, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight, joy, find your joy there. And in 1 John 5, it says, this is the confidence that we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. James 4.3 says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Again and again and again, what we see in Scripture is as we place our joy and our hope in Jesus instead of our circumstances, then we can ask according to his will and he'll change us from the inside out. And again and again and again, by the way, Jesus Makes his will clear to us. If we want to know what what it is, it's right there in this passage in John, uh, verse verses nine through eleven. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says, if you keep my commandments, what is his commandment? Well, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends, which is what Jesus was heading to do on the cross. He says, this is how you love like me. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Jesus is basically saying, listen, not only am I your master, I'm your friend. I call you friends because you know what I'm up to. I'm up to my father's business. What's my father's business? It's loving and so he says, so I call you my friends. Jesus is our master. Think about it. Think about the power dynamics at play between a master and a servant. It's one thing to, tell, uh, for, for, to, to have them tell you what to do. It's another thing for them to call you friend. It's an unequal relationship, but the master calls us his friend. Jesus picks us as his friend. He says, I want you to be my friend. I mean, most relationships are two people saying, I pick you. What's great about this passage is Jesus is like, we're friends because I picked you. And think about that for a second. If it being the, the other way around, if, if, if you had said, oh, this is all because of me picking Jesus to be my friend, then you could just as easily unpick that friendship anytime you you want. But Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 I pick you. Just like I did with Abraham, just like I did with Moses, I picked you to be my friend. And that should cause you to be absolutely amazed. With all of the sinful crud that I have going on in my life, he picks me. It's it's astonishing. Jesus was called a friend of sinners because he befriended sinners. He was called a glutton and a drunkard because he hung out with gluttons and drunkards. And he was okay with that. Because he picked these people as his friends. And so too we should live that kind of life that, that has that that has the joy that comes from Jesus. And, And other people would be like, well, why do you live like that despite the external circumstances that suck so badly? And we can say, because Jesus picked me as his friend. He's a friend of gluttons and drunkards and me. And that should give us joy. And so as we close, let me ask one final question, that is, if if joy is such an essential feature of the life of Christians who are filled by God's Spirit and who are bearing the, the fruit of the Spirit, why then is it so often missing in our lives? Why are Christians so miserable so often? Well, you know, maybe it's simply because we, we simply forget. You know, it's easy to get tired and and irritable and then fall into all kinds of self-pity. And and self-pity is the great enemy of joy. And so that is why we need to regularly remind ourselves of the great truths of the gospel. We need to go over them again and again in our minds until we realize how inconsistent it is to say we believe such wonderful gospel truths and then still go around filled with misery and feeling sorry for ourselves and spreading gloom to all those around us. I mean, speaking personally, I find that I need to speak severely to myself along these lines quite often. For I'm so easily tempted to to feel down and sorry for myself. But then I remind myself of the gospel of God's grace to me. And that leads me again to the place of repentance. And then I pray for the joy of the Spirit to bear fruit in my life and thinking. And joy like nothing else shows whether we really believe the gospel. Joy is gospel authenticity. Joy is not an emotional buzz, uh, 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 an escape from the difficulties we face. To know Jesus means to, to taste and to want to taste more the delights of peace with God the Father who cares for us and smiles on us, the Son who journeys with us, and the Spirit who empowers us. Yes, crushingly hard days come and, 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 and conscious fellowship with, with God may be overshadowed for a season in our lives, but the triune God with it is with us. He is our joy. And that joy is the most convincing sign that the gospel has won our hearts. Let's pray.